Welcome to another edition of ITC Entertain the World podcast with myself, Jazz Wiseman. And as always, I'm joined by my fabulous co-hosts, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. Uh, how are you doing, guys? Very well, thank you. Yeah, all good here, thanks. Hi again. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have been joined, I'm delighted to say, by the very talented actress, Jane Marrow. Hello, Jane. How are you? Hi, I'm fine, Jazz. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's great. It's our pleasure to have you here with us today. Perhaps we could start with uh, a very simple question is, um, how did you get into becoming an actress? How did your acting career start? Well, I wanted to be an actress from the age of about eight. I had family in the theatre. So there was a lot of talk about it. You know, it was part of our family conversation, really. And I loved showing off and I loved acting in front of other people from a very early age. And uh, so I told my mother and father, I'm going to be an actress. Now, dad was quite pleased because he'd always wanted to be an actor, but he wasn't allowed to be because his father in Germany considered it a decadent profession. But my mother was horrified because She'd seen so much of the downside of the profession, you know, the rejection, the um, tours, you know, miserable boarding houses, all that sort of thing. And, and particularly the rejection uh, that goes on. But uh, I was determined. So I went ahead from that age. <laughs> Your mother was um, a, an, an artist, wasn't she, I believe? Yes, she was. She wanted to be a ballet dancer, but my grandfather, had been, was the uh, stage director and designer at the St. Martin's Theatre for years. He was a resident there. He, he designed the, the original Ghost Train for that play, The Ghost Train. And he saw how difficult the business was, and particularly the life of dancers, which was very short. So he persuaded her to turn to art and paid for her to go to St. Martin's Art School. And so she went into art and, and was very good at it and made a, a living and a career out of it. Yeah, because I've seen some of the uh, like drawings that you've shared of your mother's artwork, and they are fabulous. Actually, they're real great. I yeah. really like the one you shared recently. Of, yeah, the one you shared recently of like the housewife, sort of almost on her knees to all oh, yeah. That was fabulous. <laughs> she had a she had a series also called Eve Says, which was a sort of dress. Don't dress like this, but dress like this. It was very funny. I, I've got some of the stuff back in the States and I, I'm going to dig more of it out. I'm just lucky I've got some of her original work. What would have been your first <clears throat> acting role? Can you remember that? Oh, yes. Uh, straight out of drama school, I was asked to audition for John Dexter to be an ASM, an understudy at the um, Piccadilly Theatre for a play called Toys in the Attic. Uh, to understudy the juvenile lead and, and to be an ASM. And he liked me. John could be quite a difficult man. He had, didn't have a very good reputation in the business in terms of his personality and getting on with people, but he was a brilliant director. And he gave me the job and he said, you're the only actress I could hear, so I'm giving you the job. But the night he went on holiday, he said to me, I do hope you don't have to go on before I get back. And I thought, thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> but that was my first job anyway. And which, uh, which acting school did you go to? It was RADA, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I was in the same class as Tom Courtney and John Thor and wow. Sarah Miles. Yeah, wow. pretty what heady stuff. Yeah, what great company to have. Yeah, great yeah. company. How many auditions do you go through at RADA? I think, Smudge, it was probably only about two. Um, I can't really remember. I might only have been one audition. Uh, they gave us two speeches that we had to do. Um, one was a, a Shakespeare of our own choice. And goodness, you know, my, my bravado, I did Cleopatra's death scene. And one was a, a speech from <laughs> uh, that they gave us as a, cho as a choice. And, and that was a Chekhov piece. And I went in and auditioned, I think, just the once. I, I'm, I'm not sure if they, I don't think, it, it wasn't a very stringent um, process at the time. They just had to be sure that you could act, actually. 
That's really yeah. the, the only thing they were interested in, whether you had any talent and whether they were going to be wasting their time with you or not. And, and so it was fairly simple. I believe it's much more complicated nowadays. And then you go through all of RADA, you do your speech training. You move yes, it training. was only two years then. And now I believe it's four, three or four or whatever. And you can come out with a degree. I'm not sure how you can get a degree in acting, but what do I know? Yeah. Um, and we had the two years, which was really, really good. We had the most important things, which were speech and movement. And uh, we were taught technique by Peter Barkworth, who was quite a, a well-known actor at the time. And interestingly enough, I did one of my first television shows with him afterwards, a show called Detective. And I found out he was playing my boyfriend, which is quite, quite an interesting situation after he'd been my teacher. So that we did that. And then at the end of the second year, we, were, we, we did showcases. Um, and that's when we could invite agents, producers, directors, anybody we could think of in the industry who could get help us get started. And yeah. I wrote probably 200 letters by hand. There was no computers or, or form letters in those days. And I was very fortunate because an agent who was just starting out, Elizabeth Robinson, saw me and she was building her stable of actors and she was building them and herself all at the same time. And she was incredible. And she got me and all the other actors she had a lot of work. So I was lucky I had a good start. Once you were through that, did you sort of hit the ground running? Were you working straight away? Yes. She got me work almost immediately. I think, as I said, my first job was with John Dexter and ASM and understudy. Then she got me some work on BBC television. I played Oliver Twist's mother. I don't think mm -hmm. I spoke, actually. I just died. And then after that, I got called to a meeting. It was just a meeting, there was no audition at the BBC to see if I would like to play Lorna Doon. And I just sat there astonished. And they said, well, do you want to do it? And I said, oh yes, please. So that wasn't an audition either. And also my first film, I didn't audition for that either. I don't know, word of mouth got out. And the people in charge were much more trusting of their own judgment in those days. They didn't have to be convinced. I think there's a lot more, I don't know, insecurity, lack of information, whatever you want to call it nowadays. And every actor, even major actors here and in LA, you have to audition for everything, which I think, but it just shows a lack of trust that some directors and producers have in their own choices. It's astonishing, but not so in my, my day, I was very lucky. And it was Lorna Doon which established your rising star in television and brought you to the sort of things where we, which we want to talk about today and ITC guest star. Yes, I mean, Lorna Doon was amazing. Then Michael Winner asked me if I'd like to do the system. He originally wanted Julie Christie to do the role in the system. I'm playing opposite Oliver Reed. But either Julie wasn't available or she didn't want to do it. I think she just wasn't available. It was such a wonderful part. I can't imagine she didn't want to do it. And so yeah. the next thing I knew, he asked me and I didn't know him from Adam and I didn't think he knew me from Adam, but apparently he did. So I went from Lorna doing straight down, stayed in Devon, from North Devon to South Devon to Torquay and did uh, the system. And then after that, parts just started to roll in and I had some extraordinary roles at the BBC. I mean, I mean, the writing there was extraordinary. They really were written more like plays, the armchair theatre, you know. I can't remember the name of all the series now. I think it's all lumped together on, on IMDb as Theatre 625 or something like that. But uh, the BBC and to some extent ITV were doing some really amazing work. Uh, Jane, it sounds like you had a fair amount of freedom in those early roles. Was that the case or not? Yes. I think also, of course, the competition was fierce then. But it's even worse now. When I did The Lion in Winter, after The Lion in Winter, Peter O'Toole said to me, now you should really, what you should do is go away and do repertory. We still had rep then. And play all the major roles you can get your teeth into. Play every part, make a fool of yourself, just stretch yourself to the limit. Well, of course it didn't happen. Lion in Winter took off. I got you know a lot of mileage out of that part and the work kept rolling in and I'm afraid I didn't take his advice but it was one of the best pieces of advice I had when I left RADA there were still the days of repertory and it would have been good for me to have got into a major rep and do that but I for whatever reason I, I ended up doing more television than anything 
you kind of say that though, but do you feel that within the ITC series that we're going to obviously talk about, it almost had a rep feel to the actors that were used in those shows, didn't it? You did 13 ITC episodes. It seemed to me once you, got, yeah, once you got your foot <laughs> in the door, it seemed that you would, if you were in The Saint, the following week you were in Danger Man and well, the next year you were in Man in the Suitcase or something like that. I'd been doing all these wonderful BBC roles and Elizabeth Robinson, my agent, she said, well, now look, we've had a call from Rose Tobias Shaw, the casting director for, was it The Saint or Danger Man I did first? I can't remember who cast The Saint. It was, Danger Man was the first ITC show I think I did. My agent said, do, sorry, do you want to do it? And I thought, oh, well, you know, it's what we call pop television, not pop television. It's not, not the serious stuff I've been doing on television, like 1984 and The World That Summer and, and David Mercer plays and everything. But I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm an actress and I want to work and it's a good opportunity and the money was much more than I'd ever made. So I thought, why not? And I'd heard that Patrick McGoon was quite an extraordinary actor. So I said, yes, please. And off we went. I think there, you might have forgotten that you were in a show called Man of the World, which is earlier than Danger Man. You must have only been in it for like a minute or two minutes maximum. It's one of these things where you're behind a desk doing a bit of telephone acting, as we call it. You sent me the clip. I have completely forgotten that, probably because, you know, we all say there are no small parts, only small actors, but it really was a very small part and had no real relevance to the show whatsoever. So I had no idea what the show was about. But uh, I have forgotten Man of the World, yes. And I still don't really know much about it. Did you meet Craig Stevens, who was the star of it? No. So can I assume then that you were probably in the corner of a studio being filmed on your own while they were doing some stuff in the other? You can absolutely assume right. I don't think they were doing anything else, but it was a corner of the studio. When you do something like that, do you actually get a feed or somebody off camera or do you just time it to beat the gaps in the conversation? I think we had a feed. I think that the AD read the lines, if I recall correctly, and then they edited them out and edited in the other conversation. I think so. It's, it's more difficult to make a phone call believable when you're talking to a thin air. The most important thing about telephone conversations that drives me crazy with actors is that when they put the phone down, they always look into the receiver and then put the phone down. I think nobody does that. spin back then to Danger yeah. Man if you don't mind and you mentioned there the sort of tour de force that was Patrick McGowan he'd already done 39 half hour episodes and the series was being a reboot into an hour long series so were you aware of him as Danger Man? I had no idea of any of that I knew nothing of the background of the show and I think I'm pretty sure that we were filming on 35 still in those yeah. days even though it was black and white and of course the wonderful the extraordinary thing and I think Don Chaffee directed the first episode I did I can't remember the name of it now the oh that's a date with Doris was the first one and my, my personal favorite Quentin I Lawrence did Don, that one oh it was Q yes Q Lawrence well Q and Don Chaffee and Patrick Jackson I think had all come from that 50s cinema so they were really experienced film directors. They weren't just television directors, they were really experienced film directors because the British film industry that was so thriving in the 50s and into the early 60s is somewhat dried up. So we got the benefit of these directors and they were amazing because they really knew their stuff. Plus we were filming on 35. So it was a very professional set, except that of course it was much faster than a feature film shoot and I didn't really know much about Patrick. I knew he was quite a famous actor from stage and that he'd done brand on stage and and greatly admired for that. But everything I heard about him was fairly negative, that he was very difficult to work with, very demanding, didn't give much and did not like actresses very much. Now, why, I don't know. I think he didn't take actresses very seriously. Again, I don't know. Maybe he didn't get the kind of actresses that took themselves very seriously. But... I thought, well, 
you know, he must be a good actor and I'd love to work with him. So as long as I get on the set and do my job, it should be all right. And that first scene we had, you know, he sort of eyed me up and down and hello, was polite and everything. And then we sort of launched into the, the first, you know, scene, which was a pretty animated uh, dialogue. And I thought, God, this is great. This is absolutely fantastic. He, he is just amazing to work with. It was so exciting, I can't tell you. And for me as an actress, it was a big thrill. And apparently he felt the same because I met his daughter afterwards and apparently he came home one night, the first night we'd worked together and said, I think I've probably found an actress I can work with fairly easily. This is what Catherine McGoon told me. And I just loved working with him. I mean, he and, and O'Toole, the two actors that I really loved working with the most. So that scene would have been the big argument scene? No, that's when she arrives at his door and says, where were you? You, you stood me up. That We'd already, we'd got to, to, we'd started to move into each other and find each other's rhythms by that time. The main thing was to keep up with him and keep, and had to really be on top of the dialogue and the character because we were shooting very fast because it was television and also because yep. it was him, you know, he knew he was, Immaculate. He was amazing. He knew his lines inside out and backwards. There was no hesitation. And the thing I learned most from working with him and O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn was energy. The inner energy that a star actor can have is what drives the performance and makes it so exciting for the actor. And Patrick had that in spades. From the viewer's point of view, yes, you've got these sparkling star personalities but as we're watching it we've got to see somebody who can hold the screen against them and I have to say that as I've worked through these in date order and I've, I've watched and I've followed through your ITC shows the thing I'm struck by is how well you did hold the screen against these big guys you had some strong personalities you had Patrick you had Richard Bradford who could be as sparky as anything and you watch these performances and I've, I've sat the last two days and watched all, all your 13 episodes more or less bearing in mind where you were in your career. And I'm struck by the maturity and the strength of your performances, even though, you, as you say, it was just pop television. It really was. It was like making a film, only faster. And we had these wonderful directors. And people said to, used to say to me, especially about Hepburn, weren't you intimidated by working with these people? I said, God, no. Working with the best only makes you better. You know, you've got to have confidence, of course, in your own ability and you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to be on top of the character and the words and everything so that they don't become a burden or, or a worry to you. But once yeah. you're there, then the rest of it is just sheer joy. That's what I love about acting. As you were saying, you've come into this sort of ITC legacy of some of the sort of finest, more recent directors. You've got people like Don Chaffee, you've got Michael Truman, who was at Ealing, and Roy Ward-Baker, who'd done A Night to Remember. So you would have yeah. come into this quite aware of their reputation then. Oh, yes. I mean, I knew that they were experienced film directors. I didn't know all of their credits, but I knew that I was working with some of the best of the British film industry, and I felt, how lucky because every experience can only make you better if you're working with the best. It wasn't just the direct, because it was everybody else. We had, uh, Patrick used a cameraman called Brendan Stafford. And Brendan was a wonderful cameraman. And he would never have, he would never allow us to have our stand-ins stand in for our close-ups. He'd always say, well, you want to look your best, don't you? Stand in for your own close-up, who's Irish. Yes, yes, Brendan, we'll stand in for our own close-ups. <laughs> <laughs> Danger Man, A Date with Doris. I do really like that episode. And I think she gets a little kiss in this one, doesn't she? Well, she does. It's about the closest, I think, that John Drake comes to offering anything at all romantic, despite all the press guide stuff for the hour-long Danger Man about how he's going to be far more romantic. He isn't. And that's about as close as it gets, isn't it? It's the first of two. She gets two episodes and two kisses from Patrick McGowan and then after that, that sort of aspect seems to vanish from Patrick's horizon. Well, it's three in all, isn't it? Because she did a date with Doris, a room in the basement, and a man who wouldn't talk. They clearly thought very highly of her. And like she said herself, she found working with Patrick 
really interesting experience. Um, we know that Patrick McGowan wasn't the easiest to work with for many of the actresses. So obviously she found something that worked for her and it worked for him. I picked up on what she said about the fact that the two of them found each other's rhythms, I think was the expression. And I like that because obviously if you're only in one episode, and we've talked about this before on the podcast in terms of writers, etc., it's very hard to get into the groove if you're just in one episode. But obviously when she was coming back for a second or third, first of all, it meant that McGowan must have enjoyed acting with her. And secondly, obviously she felt that she'd started to understand what made him as an actor. The thing is with McGowan, and it's the thing that strikes me throughout Jane's ITC period, is the confidence and maturity she brings to the screen. And you can expect that McGowan set the bar pretty high, being the type of performer he was. When you look at the fact that in this first episode, Take with Doris, there's no obvious signs that she's in awe of the man. She respects the man as an actor and, and she gives a good, strong performance, so much so that she gets invited back. Yeah, and those other two, I mean, we shouldn't not mention A Room in the Basement and The Man Who Wouldn't Talk. With The Basement episode also, in some shows, her character would have simply been hived off. But actually, John Drake ensures that she becomes an important part of his sort of plot and mission and scheme. And so she's very much involved, isn't she? And in terms of what they actually do on the screen, I love that little bit of improvisation that she and Kate O'Mara do when they bring in the blindfolded Michael Gwynn, just sort of pretend they're in a, a hotel or an office or whatever it is. It's uh, really nicely done, a nice touch. I mean, we won't give too much away about these episodes because obviously Danger Man is a series one hours that we've got planned on our list to do. You mentioned Quentin Lawrence. He was the director on the episode of Gideon's Way that you were in, which was called Gang. Yes. I know yeah. you're quite One of my keen... favourite shows. Yeah, I was going to say, I know you're quite keen to tell us a bit about that. Well, I think the reason I liked it was because it was such a different part for me. You know, I was playing all these, some of these, you know, very proper, nice ladies and, you know, pretty girls and da-da-da-da. And suddenly I was playing, basically it was a, a, an ambitious slut. You know, she yeah. was a streetwise girl. However, you know, she loved her husband. You know, she didn't realise how much she loved him, but she was ambitious. She wanted out. It was a good meaty part for me and I, I really liked it. And of course, I think Ray had that, also that great street quality as did Ron Lacey, was a wonderful actor. But Ray and I had great chemistry. And there was this sort of underlying current, the fact that he's sending his wife off to sleep with another man so they can pull off a heist, which is going to make them a lot of money. And that was a very interesting twist or side to this, the story, which I think really worked. Might not have worked, but I think Ray and I were both good enough actors to get that part of it across. And I think that was one of the things that made the story interesting. Ray, you know, you don't yeah. usually send your wife out to sleep with another man, and she's got to be a pretty complicated woman who's willing to do that, but, you know, still loves that. As I think we hopefully demonstrate at the end, she really does genuinely love her husband. She's not cheating on him. She's doing it for a purpose. I was going to say that Ray there is Ray Brooks, just for people who aren't sure. The sort of level of writing and the direction in Gideon's Way is very, very different to the sort of usual, um, say, Saint and Danger Man shows of that period, isn't it? The writing was kind of more, well, more intense in a way. Yes, and also it gave more story to the guest actors, if you will, than it did to the regulars. I mean, as far as I remember, John Gregson does not have a massive role in this, whereas Patrick dominated the show, as did Roger. He dominated the saint, Roger Moore. They, they were in practically every scene, whereas John Gregson was not in every scene, nor were the police scenes dominant in the show. The story of the, of the crime was the more dominant story, which gave the guest artists more of an opportunity. I think that was one of the things that had about it. And again, it was shot in black and white. So I think that worked particularly well for that Gideon's way. Yeah. And on the streets in London, wasn't it? A lot of London location filming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As opposed yeah, to and like that East End the... culture was, you know, that existed. You know, I think you may or may not know, and I don't think it's, it's not uncommon knowledge, that I, I lived with an actor called David Hemmings. And he was 
his partner in later in, in life, his business partner was John Daly. When David and I were together, we met John. John was selling insurance policies. And when he, David and he got together and formed Hemdale, which then went on to win Oscars and all sorts of things. But John was really streetwise. I mean, he came from that background. His father had a boxing ring and uh, that Southeast London streetwise thing. And they knew the craze. And I, I could see all of that. And I think we got that pretty well in the Gideon's mm. way that we did, that there were these gangs that just went around, you know, intimidating and, and ripping off these poor local business people trying to make a life for themselves because it was the only way they were going to make a bit of money and, and you know, be cock of the hoop and all that sort of thing. But she wanted more. What struck me, I thought it was quite a daring concept for the time, like you say, to the sort of indecent proposal the Hollywood movie sending her out to get this knowledge. Well, he didn't send her out. She proposed it. He was very yeah, reluctant, yeah. if you remember. This he is didn't true. like the idea of his wife sleeping with somebody else. But on the other hand, he was torn yeah. enough. She is rather your televisual Lady Macbeth because you're running the show. You come up Absolutely. with the idea. Yeah. That's a huge job. It's, it's the equivalent of millions of pounds today. But one of the best scenes is the morning after when you come home and there's that guarded silence and that those looks between you before you even dare to start to speak about it. Both of you know what's happened. There's that tension, there's that frisson, and the two of you captured that superbly. I know, and it's what made the, the, the interesting and the, the, the acting really, really, I mean, today, you know, there's so much casual sex and exchanging of partners, but in those days, you know, there was, still was a morality, especially a strong morality among, in, this, in the streets, and the man was the man, and the woman was his wife, and, and basically she did what she was told, but not in this situation. She really took control of it. It was great material. The scripts we worked with in all of these shows were terrific, mm. wonderful writers. The producers on that were Bob Baker and Monty Berman. Is there anything you want to say about them? Because obviously you worked with them when they were doing The Saint. Monty, I didn't really know at all. I mean, he never drifted onto the set. Bob was very close to Roger and he would come onto the set quite a bit. And he was a very jokey, friendly, very nice man. He and Roger used to want to, you know, that was very important to them to keep the set happy and, and bubbling along and keep the crew happy because being a, a crew on a series is pretty grinding work. And the crews can get jaded and bored and that they're all professional, but it's still pretty grinding work. It's a bit mundane. But Bob and, and Roger would sort of set up practical jokes and always keep the, the set atmosphere light and happy, which worked for The Saint as well because it was a light, happy show. I thought that she was particularly proud of her performance in Gideon's Way, which brought a very different edge to her. She was like the brains behind this criminal gang. And, it, and whereas her husband was thinking about relatively small time criminal activities, she was the one who was looking for the big goal, the big deal, the kind of big raid, a chance to do one big one and get out of there for a new life. And I thought she came across brilliantly in that. And of course, she's compromised because she has to go and sleep with the guy that she met before she met her husband. That's a really interesting role and something really great for her to get her teeth into. Well, it's one of those Gideon's Way episodes that really does sort of try and plug into the beginning of Swinging Sixties, isn't it? And uh, I think the part of Lola Romano... It, I'm pretty sure it must have been quite daring for the time, because even though we don't actually see anything that goes on, it's made quite clear that she has slept with him. And when she comes back to her husband, there's a real tension, isn't there, in the atmosphere between the two of them, which is brilliantly done. As Jane Marrows pointed out, that it was a unique series in that if you were a guest character, you were at the forefront. You weren't there on the margins. You know, it was the police who were on the margins, not you, wasn't it? The stories revolved around the characters that week. Well, like you say, Gideon and his team were almost sort of secondary to the writing. I thought it was incredibly daring for the timing. It was tuning into that 60s thing of aspiration. And in this part, it was aspiration by any means. And it reflects a thread through James IT's appearances in that it's not cutesy dolly bird roles. It's good, strong writing for the women. Mm -hmm. 
mentioned Gideon's way and working with Quentin Lawrence and you'd worked with him prior on Danger Man. Would the return be a general casting from Rose to Buy a Shore or what would he have asked for you specifically? I have no idea. The call, the, you know, the availability check and the contract always came through Rose, but actually how it yeah. came about, I don't know. I'm not sure that the directors were in charge of the casting. They would be on a major film, but I think a lot of the casting came from the production yeah, did you get to meet Sid Cole on The Danger Man, the producer? No. Well, if I did, I honestly don't remember. When you come back, do you always come back on a script or is, is the offer of another ITC with a familiar crew enough? No, I think they used to send me the script. It was all pretty much simultaneous because I knew if a script was coming through from either of those shows, it going to be a good part and a good script. I was pretty confident they weren't going to offer me a sort of walk-on role at that point. Yeah. Although I would have done that, I think, for them. And they sort of took you through all the studios. You went through to Shepparton, MGM, Pinewood. We were working at MGM. We were working at Pinewood. MGM in, in Elstree was Patrick and the Saint was the other, ABPC, wasn't it? Yeah. Did you get the impression, because we look into things like production values and set design, set dressing, all that sort of thing in the podcast. Did you get the impression whilst you were working for ITC that this was quality stuff you were doing? It was a high standard. Very high standard, very, very high standard. And I think that's the reason these shows have lasted and they've got a, an audience today is because of the quality of work, not just the acting and, and the writing and the directing, uh, but the stories, the scripts, the art direction, everything. I mean, the British crews are amazing. I'm so proud to have been a part of that. And our crews were astonishing. I wonder if you'd remember the Baron episode, Red Horse, Red Rider. Do you remember much about that episode and working with Steve Forrest? Yeah, I do. And I can't remember who directed that one. Was, was it? John Moxie. Oh, that's Of course it was John, because we and I stayed in touch with each other. He's gone now, bless him, I think. But he, he moved to Washington State and we used to mm. stay in touch with each other. The thing I remember particularly about that show, funnily, rightly or wrongly, was there was a gunfight in the street, which we shot at uh, AB, we were shooting that at ABPC, yeah. I think. And Steve got hit in the face with a blank. And it really, he got hurt. I remember that particularly, those blanks were very dangerous and people didn't realize that. That I do remember. And also the actor who played the, the sort of wild man, Wolf, was, what was his name? Frank Wolf. Frank Wolf, that's right. He was the sort of kind of character I would meet later on in LA to some extent. And he was almost too much. Steve was cool. He was just laid back, laconic. He had that kind of so what attitude of, you know, I'm a Hollywood actor and I'm just in it for the money sort of thing. He enjoyed himself, but he wasn't what I call a kind of actor in quite the same state of mind, if you will, as someone like a Patrick. But mm. he was fun to work with. I bumped into him in L.A. actually after I moved out there when I got married. And he said, what the heck are you doing out here? And I said, well, I'm live here now I'm, I'm married he said well there's not much work out here what do they have much call for english princesses over here <laughs> <He was> right. <laughs> that's interesting that contrast so you say there between for example patrick and roger who are obviously british compared to steve who's an american coming into the british system do you think he had any troubles with that or do you think he was so laid back that he just i think he was yeah. so laid back see a lot of American actors, especially like him, I'm not sure if he came, what background his was, but like Lee Majors was a stuntman. And a lot of them had come into Hollywood to make money. That was what they were about, to be in the movies and make money. That was a big attraction. And a lot of them had different backgrounds in the business, but it, they weren't necessarily proper actors background like Patrick had, where he'd been on stage and stuff like that. But a lot of them were just in there for the ride. And I think Steve probably, possibly was one of those because his brother was quite a famous actor who'd done a lot of work. Donna Andrews. And you must remember mm. Donna Andrews, yeah. That point you made about the gunfights brings me back to a more general point. Did you get much rehearsal? Was it rehearse, record? No, we did rehearse it because when you're messing around with guns and blacks and everything, people do get hurt. 
And also in those days, health and safety wasn't so big. So you've done a black and white episode of The Saint. You're now coming back and it's a colour episode and it's being directed by Leslie Norman, who's got a bit of a reputation right. for being a shouter. And I just wondered if you were a victim of his shout. I remember him shouting. Okay. No, I mean, it wasn't a very difficult episode. He did, there was not a, I wouldn't have called it a greatly challenging shoot. You know, there wasn't a lot of action in it. One thing I remember is when Roger and I had scenes in the car with, you know, we do those on set they'd have a car on a sort of thing with a revolving drum in the back you know yeah, for the scenery yeah. and we'd run our dialogue like that no but I don't remember him as a shouter everybody was so damn good at their job there wasn't really anything to stress about you get that lovely yeah. segment set around Amsterdam and you and Roger in back projection yeah, and back lot of, back lot of ABC. <laughs> well, what is it ITV now isn't all... it yeah. yeah yes and some, somebody's gone out and done all that lovely Second unit I know. footage. But that was yeah, part of the, the, the charm of the saint, wasn't it? All these wonderful locations he was supposed to be on. Um, However, I did a show called Van der Volk, and that was all shot mm. in Amsterdam. That was nice. Yeah, with Barry Foster. Yeah. yeah. I was going to move on and ask you about your recollections of working with Richard Bradford on Man in a Suitcase. And that episode was directed by Pat Jackson and had Rodney Buse, Anthony Nichols in it. And um, of course, you're in a wedding dress in it, Jane. You get married on screen. Well, not quite get married. It was a good show, but I didn't have a great feel for Richard, I have to be honest with you. He was a little bit of a Hollywood star coming down to little old England to make a television series. Maybe I misjudged him, whatever. I don't know, but I didn't... Uh... People love him, and he's a good actor. I mean, he was wonderful in, in a film called The Chase with Marlon Brando and Redford. I don't know that he was, you know, I, I've got the feeling he, he didn't maybe felt he was just doing a little television. I, I could be doing him so much injustice, but he didn't have quite the passion and, and the interest I got from, from the other two and all the sense of humour. It was a great show. I'd known Rodney on and off for years because he had a room in the place where I roomed when I, I was at RADA and he was not sure what he was doing. And it was an, a lovely part again. But I didn't have a connection with Richard that I had with the others. He did sort of later in his career, later in life, he did admit he, th he thinks he missed an opportunity. He made a few mistakes in being a bit judgmental about doing the ITC series, but he thought it still stood up pretty well. We've got a theme on our podcasts running through uh, the ITC shows about disaffected debutantes and, and your character in The Man in a Suitcase. It struck us that she was another one of these jaded devs. And yeah, I think spoiled, they're spoiled. Yes, and you've conveyed that pretty well. The whole theme of the show runs around the tension of knowing what actually happened and who was responsible for the actual death. And your, your character is deeply involved. And again, with Richard, another strong personality actor, again, we see you holding the screen toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, there's no question he had the power and the, the charisma on screen. But I didn't enjoy working with him as much as I did the, the people we've been talking about before. I appreciated the role. I loved it. It was a great part and everything it was a good story, well written, other lovely actors and so on. Well, if he admitted it himself, I didn't feel he was as engaged as he should have been. You know, he'd come over, he'd taken the job, he was taking the money, then bloody will put your soul all into it. She found working with Steve Forrest to be easy. And I'm going to compare this now to Richard Bradford, where she says that he wasn't quite so easy. And I suppose that comes down really to the temperament of the two men we're talking about, whereas we've got lots of reports and even interviews with the two men, whereas Steve seems very easygoing and just laid back. Richard obviously wanted to bring reality and grit to his performance. And if we're honest, Red Horse, Red Rider, that Baron episode is a bit weak, isn't it? Let's face it, we, when we did our Baron podcast, we didn't put that in our top five episodes anywhere near it. And that's nothing to do with Jane's performance. And that's nothing to do, really, I would say, with Steve Forrest's performance. I just thought the story was a bit a bit weak, really. As we said in our podcast about the Baron episodes, 
not many writers and that sort of over familiarity meant that some of the scripts were not quite as good as they could be but i thought she did well in it well i mean in terms of the baron i i think it's by no means one of the worst episodes uh, i think i if i remember rightly when we did the podcast i said it's one of those episodes that's got a sort of bit of a western feel to it and she doesn't have a tiny part in it but there's not a huge amount of a character she's been given is there true it's essentially the road movie episode, isn't it? It gets them in the cross-country chase. And as you say, she's not given a great deal to do, but she still acquits herself well. There are some nice little bits, like the little bit with Miros, where Jane's character says, you know, if it, if it had been me, I'd have slit your throat from ear to ear. Again, a bit of strength to it. And she is quite still a strong character within a not-so-strong story. But I, I thought with what she said about Man in a Suitcase, that was really quite interesting because that is a real Marmite episode, isn't it, The Bridge? I don't know many people who particularly think it is good. I do know one or two. The things that we feel let it down, i.e. Rodney Bewes, Jane was very pro-Rodney Bewes, which is interesting because obviously we as the viewers don't feel any sympathy for Rodney Bewes' character. Her appraisal of Richard was very honest and Richard, by his own means, would say he was a difficult person to work with. And I don't think he was difficult on the whole with the actresses, though. This is where no. I would come mm. in. I think she was probably unlucky in that she was cast in the episode that put him in a foul temper because of the whole insurance scam of being asked to climb this bridge and then being told afterwards, well, you didn't sign any of the forms if you'd had an accident. And he felt very angry and cheated by the production company over that, rightly or wrongly. And I'm sure by the time that she was on set, probably at least some of that early bridge climbing scenes had been done. And I imagine he was in a foul mood by that point. I mean, it's not a great story either, to be honest. I think her character is quite an interesting character. She's one of those mid-60s young women who's already jaded, which we talked about on the podcast at the time. I've never heard any other actresses who were particularly critical of Richard Bradford. It tended to be the odd director, and obviously Sidney Cole sometimes you know, was on the brunt of Richard Bradford's sort of desire to make it real. I thought it was interesting that she talked about he came here with this sort of Hollywood almost ego. I mean, he'd only done one film. He seemed to have internally been an individual as the actor carrying the series. He seemed to have all the stresses that McGowan had in producing and carrying a series. And looking at it again for this one, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Jazz, with the word character. It's, it's Rodney Buse's character. His character is such a wet that within five minutes of understanding the premise of the episode you're sitting there thinking jump jump go on yeah mm. i suppose the thing is in most of those men in a suitcase episodes the main female guest characters are there to provide either full-on romance in the case of someone like rosemary nichols mm -hmm. the possibility of romance or certainly romance in the parts with jacqueline pierce or even someone like jason in sweet sue there is a frisson between them. And obviously this wasn't an episode where that was ever going to be the case. So it was probably a very different relationship between them than might have been had she been playing a love interest of his, I don't know. Can we move on to the prisoner then? Because you'd worked with Patrick three times before and it's yeah. got a bit of a reputation of being a difficult series to have worked on and yet again you seem to just be able to sort of glide in there and hold your own with Patrick and find it from what you've said not necessarily pleasure. easy but a pleasure and and you and you don't have well, any I, difficulties as such yeah I'd heard I'd heard the stories about Patrick and Leo McKern and that he was driving everybody very hard and I think it was partly because it was his concept, his idea, and he was a producer of the show and he had more invested in it. And so probably the stress of all of that combined to make him maybe more demanding. But I didn't find it with me because we already knew each other as actors. We were comfortable with each other as actors. We enjoyed each other as actors. And so it was again, another great part for me, you know, playing a, a sort of double dealer. 
so I just, you know, I, I another show that I had a great time on working with him. Maybe it was a bit more tension on the set at that time, but I really think it was a lot to do with the fact that it was Patrick's baby. You know, he wasn't just an actor for hire on that show. He yeah. was the producer, the creator. What did you think of the overall concept of the series? Interesting. You know, people would go to him and say, what's it about Patrick? And he'd go, I don't know. We knew that wasn't true. I mean, I think it is definitely an Orwell, Orwellian futuristic Big Brother theme behind it. I don't think there's any question about that. But I don't think Patrick was an actor who would particularly have been interested in getting involved in what people or the press might have turned into a political statement and so on. I don't think he wanted to engage on that level. He understood the value of the show as a piece of entertainment again for the audience. And he had a captive audience because they already loved him from Danger Man. And he wanted to keep the show on that level. I don't think he wanted to, it to become a sort of, you know, pseudo intellectual talking piece. That was my feeling about it. Which kind of in a way is what it's become, isn't it? There are endless theories. But it has. And, and you yeah. see, all of that stuff is fine and it's good, but it excludes audiences. And we're there to engage audiences. It doesn't matter what who the audience is, whether they're a car mechanic from Stockton or a, a man who runs a library in Dulwich or whatever. They are the audience and we want to engage them. We don't want to create a, a controversy or this is entertainment. And particularly those shows were entertainment. You mentioned about you had some great actors. Were you surprised by the quality of casting? I mean, at one of your shows, you, you come in with Sir Anthony Quayle, one of our great nights. Uh, we I had a crush on him when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> were you surprised at that, that level of casting that they could get for what you call pop television? To some extent, yes. I mean, I was. These were the classical theatre actors. Mm. I don't know what, whether they felt that they needed to, to expose, you know, that this is much more exposure than they're ever going to get by being constantly at the Royal you know, Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-on-Avon. And it broadens their appeal much more but by putting themselves out there in front of the audience. So I assume it was that and, and the money and, and the fact that they were starring in the series. And why not? You know, we're in the entertainment business and one can't get too elitist about it, I don't think. We briefly mentioned Anthony Quayle there. The director on the Strange Report episode that you did there was Peter Duffel. Because in that one, I really like the fact that you did, again, a lot of location work. You're out on the streets around Waterloo yeah. Station and stuff. That's right. Must have been nice to actually get out of the studio. Yes, it was. And it was an interesting show for me because... Must have been after Lion in Winter, was it? Yes. yes, it was. I was coming at it from a slightly different position in the industry at that time. I had the same amount of fun and I loved it and everything else, but I, th I think people looked at me slightly differently. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, you know, Lion in Winter gave me a pretty big calling card and also the Golden Globe nomination. When I got mm -hmm. that, I was in Australia and they said, Jane, Jane, you've got this nomination. I said, what the heck, what is it? I've never heard of the Golden Globes. At that time, it was a, a pretty important nomination and I had no idea and was delighted and thrilled. And then I was told I was on the long list for an Oscar and I'd been in L.A. and, and the publicist, lovely man on Lion and Winter, was getting ready to leave after the Golden Globes. He said, oh, don't go anyway. He said, you're on the long list for the Oscars. You might get nominated for that, too. <clears throat> when I didn't, when I came back to England, I was not saying that I felt like a star, but I was not quite as seated in England by that time. The subject matter, though, in that... It was political, very political. Yeah, it was, well, it was about racism and, and your father... Well, it was certainly about yeah. racism. And your father yeah. was kind of the, the in charge of the, the British National Party kind of equivalent. Yeah. yeah. So that must have been... Uh, well, it was interesting inter to me yeah. because my father was a refugee from Nazi Germany. So he brought me up very much to be very anti-racist. You know, it doesn't matter what colour, religion or anything you are. To be prejudiced against it is wrong. Mm. And that's how he brought me up. So the show resonated with me in that respect. And then after Strange Report, we move on to something a little lighter when you did your Randall and Hopkirk oh. episode, which is a bit of a, an Agatha Christie, Tendril Indians type thing. Oh, well, they, they, they were a delightful couple, you know, mm -hmm. the two of them. Yeah. I'd done a film already with Kenneth Cope. We'd oh. done a film called The Night of the Big Heat together, which was... Well, actually, it was a bit larky, really, but 
and and I liked him and I he was lovely and and Mike was charming charming man so that was fun you um, could see see as an instant the chemistry between you and Mike how did you get on with the ghost thing and the stopping and starting when the ghost had to appear I've forgotten. <laughs> Sorry. You, you I've completely I mean, forgotten. <laughs> no, don't worry. I have totally forgotten the show. I'd have to see it again to remember it all. But it was fun. And again, delightful pair of actors. I remember when I first did Lorna Doon, one of the actors came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, the series was a success and a good series and a happy series because you and Bill Travers made it so. And I think that's true of all of those ITC shows. If we had a good, engaged, strong leading man like Patrick, like Roger, like the two in Brandon Hopker, the show is going to be a success because that spills through everything. And it comes across to the audience. They know. We sort of run down the ITC period now and we come to UFO. That was fun, though. I enjoyed that. I adored Ed. He was super. And Michael Billington, who I did Hadley with afterwards. I really liked the pair of them, lovely couple of guys. And Ed with his silly wig and everything. And the great thing about that show was my car chase. I drove that Porsche around the Crystal Palace racetrack. It was wonderful. I loved it. And the seduction scene with Ed was fun. We both got the giggles in that. UFOs, you know, we're all the living human embodiments of the puppets, weren't we? There's that bit of different sexualization in UFO and you're down to your underwear and nothing yeah. subtle about it. In a short time, it's changed so much. Well, it was just fun. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't anything to be taken seriously. The show is a fantasy show, really, isn't it? Oh. Gideon's Way was a realistic, gritty piece of, of now drama. UFO is, is a piece of comic book stuff, not to be taken too seriously. So, as I said, Ed and I had a, we used to giggle, but we had a lot of laughs in that scene. It wasn't anything to, you know, to take too seriously. And I had to find a justification for the, you know, the nastiness of the woman. You know, she was a wicked journalist and I had to find that justification. So I've always got to find the other side of a character. There is always a human side to any bad character as well. The only blight on that was the Sylvia incident. And she came up to me and she said, this is not working. You're, you're saving your performance for the close-ups. I said, what? She said, it's a Hollywood thing. We know all about it. I said, you are. But I basically said, how dare you? This is yes. nonsense. I've never so been accused of anything like that in my life. And I take great offense to it. Strange Report was another one of those um, stories where there's a conflict within her character, which, again, she plays so well. You know, this conflict between what her father believes in and what she wants. And I think Peter Duffel got a great performance out of her in that episode, to be honest. It's not so much about the script in this one. It's about the performance. You have to see it coming out of the actress. It's the non-verbal stuff. It's like, it's like that little sequence in Gang War when she comes home. It's the non-verbal stuff. We have said on these pods before, there is connective tissue between those two shows. There is an element of Strange Report at its best when it does connect with Gideon's Way and looking at social issues. And that is certainly one of the episodes, isn't it? And when yeah. you've got, you know, some of the scenes like this black guy scrambling across wasteland with things like Hazard of Parliament not far away, etc. It was pretty dark stuff. Yeah, being chased by those National Front thugs. Yeah. Going to get his head kicked in with the backdrop of the Houses of Parliament. It's brilliantly directed that. It's an incredible turmoil for that character because it, it is so deep-rooted. It comes to a point where she cannot live with her father. I was going to say what I thought was really great about that was the difference in the generational attitudes. Jane is this girl who is growing up in the 60s with the Beatles and all of that and that counterculture, sod the war kind of thing, memories of that. Whereas her father, this guy who's been in the army and is very patriotic to the country and wants post-war Britain to still have an empire and strong I thought that episode caught that and the performances of her and Guy Dolman were spot on in that, in the way that they captured that. 
And yet, yeah. sadly, 50 years on, we're still talking about Black Lives Matter. I think, you know, one of the sad things is watching some of those deeper ITC episodes so many years on, you feel, have we learned from it? Which is, yeah. in a way, why they're still powerful episodes, isn't it? It's interesting that Jane couldn't remember doing Randall and Hopkirk, especially as I think I did a DVD commentary with her and Roy Wall Baker about it. What I liked about this one was there's a real flirtation between her character and Mike Pratt's Jeff Randall. So she's Sandra Joyce. There's definitely a lot of flirting going on. And especially what we've spoken about before, actresses doing or actors acting with their eyes, the way she looks at Mike Pratt and she's got that twinkle and that glisten in her eye you know there's like she she would definitely like to engage in some fun with jeff randall they do don't they i think they get at least one kiss in yeah yeah in terms of jane's itc catalog it's a pretty light episode really it's a bit of fun as a sort of lighter series perhaps you might not remember it as well but again she's got that impact because she's acting with people like cyril luckham a great stage actor, and she still holds her. And what you have to remember across the, the gamut of this ITC stuff, we hit the end of Jane's ITC period, and she's not even 30. I think the thing is, as an actress, certainly of that generation, those were in many ways your glory days, weren't they? Your 20s. Because we all know that whereas actors tend to have a slightly longer shelf life, there is a feeling, oh, she's 35, or she's a bit too old to play this part, that part. It's quite a cruel profession. Those are golden years, aren't they, really? She doesn't look down on the ITC shows, does she? I mean, she says it was like making a film, only faster. Yep. And that you sort of get caught up in the story. And sometimes all you need is a palm tree and you've gone off on the adventure. That's how we feel as viewers. And that's clearly how she often felt as a performer as well. Yeah, and she saw it for what it was. It was entertainment. Even coming back to the prisoner at the end of the day, it was a piece of entertainment that Lou was looking to sell across the pond and around the world. Perhaps her last performance in an ITC show, UFO, is one of the ones that she herself said that she had some trouble with Sylvia Anderson. She didn't have any trouble with any of the actors, and she loved working with Ed Bishop, and she loved driving the car, the Porsche. Much as I like UFO, as I've come back to it in more recent times, I have found some of the episodes to be particularly quite wooden. Um, and I'm really sorry to have to say that to fans of UFO. You know, I'm, I was a big fan of UFO myself for a long, long time, and I still do like it. But I think now, as I'm older, I don't think it's aged quite as well. And I think that it just seemed a bit flat, this I thought the gratuitous nature of her stripping off down to her underwear. I mean, she didn't mind, but it just felt like it wasn't even needed. It was just like one of those things that they just put in for the sake of it, I felt. I think it's a, it's a show that's horribly dated. I mean, you know, you watch Danger Man, Saint, Man in a Suitcase. Obviously, Prisoner has a timeless element anyway. And those shows don't seem particularly dated. Well, for me, it's almost puppets without strings, I'm afraid. It's a good performance, but you forget how much of a substrand it is really of the plot. You've got so much of the Alec Freeman thing. And it was an attempt I felt by the scriptwriter to humanise the Straker character. I don't think it did. And I didn't agree with the underwear scene. I, think, I thought, what was the point of that? Well, also, when you think about it, if we cast our minds back to Gideon's way... The part where she had slept with the guy and then come in afterwards the following morning says mm. more about the kind of relationship thing, if you know what I mean, like yes. sort of sexual tension, sexual nature of the program than it just does with Jane standing there in a bra and knickers looking at Ed yep. Straker. Do you know what I mean? Less is more again, isn't yeah. it? Plus, I mean, Gideon's Way is a show for grown-ups. Even without today's thinking, the scene itself just goes clunk. It's poorly executed, isn't it? It's not well directed and it's not well realised. And I think that's the thing now I look at UFO and I think, is it a kid's programme or is it an adult's programme? <laughs>
I was just wondering, Jane, where, whether in view of the fact that there are so many talented young British actresses in those sort of early to mid 60s ITC shows, obviously, including yourself, whether there was almost an unofficial union where perhaps you actually sort of met up and chatted with each other and shared stories and experiences on the shows. No, there was no sort of jolly, you know, girls together and all that sort of stuff. No, we were competition with each other. So I say that with love in my heart. I don't mean it in, in any kind of, but we, did, we just weren't sort of jolly girls together. Jane Merrow, janemerrow.com, Jane Merrow, independent producer and actress. Jane Merrow seems to be still as passionate about acting as ever. And I don't think that's ever going to stop, is it? No, I, until they drag me out feet first. I just love it. Mm. And the writing, the producing is all with a, an aim to doing the acting. The producing is kind of interesting. Mm. The writing is interesting. I'm not a real writer. I do it because I want to act. I'd write a lot of parts for myself. That's really what that's all about. And the other thing is my webmaster in, a, in Idaho, he created the website and he said, well, we've got to have the brand. And he said, the brand is Jane Merrow. We have to build that brand. Well, I don't know what he was talking about, but now I'm beginning <laughs> to understand. Yeah. I yeah. love it. The technology has brought huge opportunities to people like me, you know, would-be filmmakers and so on. I've had a good time in Idaho. I've, I've found a lot of good filmmakers out there, people who love doing it and are very skilled at doing it. Of course, they are largely of the digital world. We're talking different, you know, night and day from people like Les Norman and Pat Jackson to the young kids out in, in Idaho. Jane, I really want to thank you for spending the time to just chat to us and tell us about what you were up to in those days and what you've been up to since. It's been a real delight to be able to share this time with you and, and hear you chatting about this stuff. Thank you, Jazz. I was happy to do it because it was a really important time in my life and I will always be grateful that I was able to be part of that ITC world. We should say that this podcast is primarily about Jane's ITC career, but obviously Jane's career didn't end after she did UFO. She went off, she got married, she moved to America, and she appeared in many, many American TV series from Mannix through to Heart to Heart, Magnum P.I., Alias Smith and Jones. I mean, she was in any of those sort of 70s American series. She was probably in most of them. And she had a very, very successful career there. And Jane's still working now. She's very busy at the moment working on a number of projects. It's been a real pleasure to be able to talk to her about that decade in particular. So we're very lucky. And thanks ever so much, Jane. I love the fact that Jane is such a strong presence within the modern technology. She's producing, uh, she's writing, she's got a back catalogue of more recent independent films and horror shorts or ghost story shorts. You can find her on the web, she's accessible, she's just Jane and she's not thinking of retirement and I think that's marvellous. I think that's how you keep going. You're looking at the next project and at the same time it's nice that she's able to look back with fond memories but it's not all uh, those were the days, you know, she's still writing and, and doing other things as well, which I think is brilliant. With that in mind, I'd just like to thank our very special guest, Jane Marrow. Thanks ever so much, Jane. It was a delight to have you on this podcast. Thanks also to my amazing co-hosts, Rodney Marshall and Al Smudge. So it's goodbye from me and we'll see you again very soon. Hope you enjoy this special sort of episode, but we'll be back to our regular format soon. You have been listening to ITC Entertain the World podcast with Jazz Wiseman, Rodney Marshall, Al Smudge, and special guest Jane Murray. It was a bitter and twisted production for the morning after.
I didn't know we were going to be talking this long. 